Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I occasionally go for a Kuiperina and Samba session at the Araquans bar, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm just an ugly stepsister hoping to be chosen by the most eligible prince in town, as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our guest of honour, who mysteriously never stays out after midnight, is none other than Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? How are you feeling? It's the Bangers era. We made it. So, so excited for the Bangers era. Let me just solve that one mystery for you. The reason I never stay out after midnight is that I'm 28 and I tire quickly. (laughs) I thought it was because you were a gremlin and that's also why we shouldn't splash you with water and all of that stuff as well. It's both of those things. A little from column A, a little from column B. (laughs) (laughs) We've been waiting for this for weeks now, haven't we? It's been a blast doing the package era films, but it is great to be back in not just sort of straight ahead narrative features, but also in some really, really well-known Disney movies. Like, we've called this the Bangers era because it's a real string of classics again, and maybe, dare I say, more, like, outwardly entertaining classics than the first five features, which, I don't know, those films to me feel like they have a bit of an arty, cultural reverence. Ooh, like, don't get too close. Keep them behind the little thing at the museum, whereas these are like, oh, it's, it's Cinderella, you know? We grew up on this. Well, I mean, that's that's very much your opinion. I am one... <laughs> to put on Dumbo for a laugh, or sections of Dumbo at least for a laugh. I can see why you might feel that way about maybe Pinocchio and Fantasia, and I'm interested in... So again, these are movies, I'm presuming, which is still these are movies that you haven't watched in a long time, right? Yeah, I have seen Cinderella, but it, so much of this did not ring any bells for me. So, And I think there's going to be a bunch of ones in this era that will probably feel like that, where you go, oh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I knew this film, and actually, I really didn't. I'm, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but there was like the opening 20 minutes of Cinderella, I was like, what is going on? Yeah, so it's things like that that I'm wondering if they will test your hypothesis that these films are more outwardly entertaining. We'll see. Mm. I think something that is interesting as well is that we're heading more properly into, like, princess territory as well. It's been so long since we had Snow White, and I was there when we started this podcast thinking, we're going to be doing a Disney princess a week. And it's been months, and we're finally at Disney princess number two. Yeah, there are not many Disney princess movies for a long time. They only really started absolutely bashing them out in the 1990s. We've got Snow White in 1937, Sleeping Beauty in 1959, and then in between the two, 
with huge gaps on either side, we've got Cinderella. And then, I don't know why I did them in that order, but that's the way that they came out. <laughs> and then after Sleeping Beauty, it's then another 30 years till you get to the next one. Another 30 Whoa. years before Little Mermaid. That's maths, yes, running it over in my head. So yeah, this idea of the Disney princess brand and, and that being something that Disney did all of the time only really came about in the late 1990s when they started retroactively grouping these characters together. And that's something I imagine we'll talk about a bit in this episode and a little bit more down the road about how much these princesses and how much these movies fit into that archetype. But having said that, I think it would be fair to say that this is the closest we have come to the platonic ideal of what people imagine when they think of a Disney movie. Like, this is much more of a musical compared to any of the ones we've looked at. I mean, Mm. Snow White and Pinocchio, I guess you would class them as musicals as well, but then as you get further down the road, there are songs in Dumbo, there are songs in Bambi, but they're not really musicals. The characters don't really perform those songs. Um, it's it's more kind of a chorus, like a backing track performs the songs while some action takes place in the foreground. This is a musical, and the next few are very much musicals as well. Yeah, and I remember when we were starting the package era, something you were really excited about was the fact that you don't really get to talk about those films so very often. They don't come up in conversation. They don't often come up in your academic world either. So what's your relation to the Bangers era? Well, again, actually, these ones do kind of slip under the radar because as an academic, especially as a lecturer teaching the history of animation, those first five, you do kind of cover them all. Like, I have lectures where I talk. I have some lectures devoted exclusively to one of those movies. I have some lectures where I kind of summarise that era and talk about all the different developments that were taking place. But this next batch, I think as we go through them, we are going to see that each one of them is different and unique and innovative in its own way. But also, in a sense, they represent Disney kind of spinning their wheels, just doing what they do. I don't want to use the word churning. (laughs) That has negative connotations. What about Chernabog? Yeah, like Chernabog, they are just summoning these films up from the darkness. That doesn't make sense either. You know what? It's kind of an assembly line process in the sense that these films are becoming quite similar to one another and they are more consistent in terms of their level of quality, I think, or more consistent in terms of the ways in which they are entertaining and the way that that first batch of five aren't. They're all very good, but they're all very good in different, unique, interesting ways. So, circling back to where I started with this, yes, these aren't a group of films which come up a lot when you're really thinking about and teaching the history of Disney because it feels like a long period when no major developments took place. And Cinderella in particular is a film that I don't go back to very often. It's a film I don't watch very often. It's a film I don't think about very often. I would say that it is a film that is incredibly historically significant without being particularly remarkable. It's remarkable in that it's a biggie. So shall we get on with it? Shall we do this thing? We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time after six package movies, we're diving headfirst into the Bangers era for a right royal ball in 1950s Cinderella. Oh, it's been weeks and weeks, Sam, but finally we have a film with a plot. Thank the (laughs) Lord. We're going to do a part of the show that we haven't done in months. 
And I'm going to ask you to sum up the plot of Cinderella as best you can. Yeah, I've completely forgotten how to do this. What is plot? Sequential? Events? Causation? Structure? What is this? So Cinderella is about a young girl who is raised by her wicked stepmother along with her wicked stepsisters. I don't want to call them ugly stepsisters. I don't think that's particularly fair. She is forced to clean the castle day and night until one fateful day when an invitation arrives to the prince's ball. Every eligible maiden in the land is asked to attend so that the king can find somebody to marry his son off to. The stepsisters and the stepmother head off to the ball, but Cinderella is forbidden from attending and they rip up her lovely dress to shreds. She's crying out there in the garden and a fairy godmother turns up. Bippity-boppity-boo gives her a new dress, big old carriage, some horses, etc. She heads off to the ball, dances with the prince, falls in love, has to leave before midnight before the magic wears out, loses a slipper on the steps. Next day, the Grand Duke goes around all the houses in the kingdom with the slipper. Whose slipper is this? Who's going to fit into the glass slipper? The prince doesn't remember what this woman's face looks like, so we'll have to do it based on foot size. Maybe he's got face blindness. It's a, it's a thing. It's a medical condition. It's true. It's one that I have not been diagnosed with, but I often tell people I suffer from to avoid awkward social situations. So, doesn't fit the stepsisters, fits Cinderella, they get married, the end. Yay! Yeah, close the book. Oh, that took a lot out of me. So, Ben, what is your relationship with the story of Cinderella, with the movie of Cinderella? I'm sure I saw this as a kid, but like I was saying in the intro, I don't think I've seen this in decades, in years and years. It's one of the most well-known stories, and yet I was quite surprised by the perspective this film takes on that story. I think also, again, my perspective was very slightly skewed because I fairly recently saw the Kenneth Branagh live-action version of Cinderella, which excises a lot of the Disney animal stuff. It's a much more sort of straight-up take on the story, but it's a real classic tale. It's never been one of my favourites, but I've been really excited to get to it in this show because I think it does have a bit of a sense of this is prime Disney in every sense. The character, the story, it's a fairy tale, it's peak animation. It feels like everything that you quintessentially think of Disney as doing is in this film. So I was really excited to get to it. Yeah, for me, it was never one that I had on VHS. Like, I can probably list the ones that we had on VHS quite comfortably. I could just, oh, we had this, 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 and this, and those were the ones that we watched all the time. I feel like I may have borrowed this one or watched it at, like, an auntie's house or something, because I did see it when I was a kid, but it's not one I have a lot of affection for. And again, not one I've been back to very often as an adult either, even for, like, work reasons or anything like that. So... It was interesting to jump back into it and to, again, as you say, kind of be faced with all of these things that you didn't quite expect, which I think is something, a theme that runs through all of this podcast, that we have an idea of what these films are in our head and then we'll go back at them and we think, oh man, a lot more mice in this than I was expecting. I knew there were mice. I did not know that there were this many (laughs) mice. 20 minutes of mice, Sam. 20 minutes of mice. So you were timing it out as well, were you? Yeah, yeah I, I checked. I was like, we're still with the mice. That's how we're spending this, this amount of the runtime. But we'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, do you know what? I enjoyed this. In fact, I think it's one of the most outright enjoyable films we've watched on the podcast so far. I had a great time revisiting it. And I'm excited to dig in. But before we do... I've got a bunch of questions for you. So this is the start of a new era for Disney. 
So first up, what was happening in the studio at this time? Like, they're out of the package era, presumably the soldiers are back from war, there's money in the coffers. Yeah, what was happening at the studio in, in as we enter the 1950s? Yeah, so again, there is a lot of overlap between the production of this film and the last few package movies. But basically, this is a result of a conflict between Walt Disney and his brother Roy, who was more of the money man at the studio. He was handling the finances. He didn't think it was time yet to jump back into making feature films. He wanted to make another few package movies that were guaranteed to be profitable because something that we've seen with the last few is that they weren't hugely successful but they weren't hugely expensive either so they allowed them to make just enough money to keep the studio open, to keep the artists paid, etc. But Walt knew that they needed to gamble on a big feature to have any chance of keeping the studio alive, to have any chance of keeping feature animation alive, because as we've seen as well, these package movies were making incrementally less money every time, and I guess Walt just looked at that, saw the writing on the wall that they couldn't keep treading water in this way forever, said, no, we'll have to make a gamble, we'll have to make this feature. And if we're going to make a feature, why not make one that is so reminiscent of that first big blockbuster of Snow White. Yeah, so so how long was Cinderella in the works for? Because I know in previous weeks you've mentioned, oh yeah, they were working on these shorts and these anthologies, but they were working on some of the big movies that we know about now at that time. They were kind of just keeping those low and slow in the background. So how long was Cinderella cooking for? And why do you think they chose this one as the big comeback? Well, when I say that they had a lot of these movies in development for a long time, I think the main one in that regard are Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, to a lesser extent Lady and the Tramp. Like, there is solid evidence that these movies existed in a state that actually quite closely resembles what we eventually got from as early as, like, 1940. We've seen art that dates back to that period where the characters look quite similar. Cinderella, the marketing at the time, pitched it as being six years in the making, which would take it back to 1944, so roughly around the end of the war. There are treatments for this going back to 1940. It wasn't anywhere near as close to going into production as Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were, but there was art, there was treatments, there were ideas running around for this story. When Walt decided it was time to go back into features, basically what happened was he put all of these movies back into production straight away and it became a race to the finish. And it was looking like it was going to be either this or Alice in Wonderland, and this just ended up being finished first. And... On the poster for this, I've, I've actually seen the 1950 poster for this. It proclaims in large letters, Greatest since Snow White. So the Disney machine was in full effect here. This feels like it's Disney itself announcing the start of the Bangers era, as much as Roy is saying, hey, let's churn out some more cheap package features. Walt is there with the uh, bells and whistles on saying, no, Disney is back in a big way. Yeah, exactly. There's marketing material as well saying not since Snow White has there been a picture like this or the movie the whole world has been waiting for. And there's a quote that I've got from Walt Disney saying that ever since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I have been eager to make a full-length all-cartoon feature which would possess all of that picture's entertaining qualities and have the same worldwide appeal. I think we have this picture presently in the works 
it is Cinderella. And, you know, you can't exactly trust anything Walt says. Of course, he's going to say that this has always been the plan to come back with this big Snow White-style movie, when, in fact, we almost could have had Alice in Wonderland be the comeback, which might not have been as effective a comeback, would have been more difficult to market as the spiritual successor of Snow White, because we'll find out next time, very different movie. So, in a way, it's a handy coincidence, but it is something that they capitalised on. When you read that quote, I fully imagined him saying, it's Cinderella, and then dropping the microphone and just walking off. (laughs) (laughs) Real mic drop moment from Big Walt there. So is there anything else we should know before we get started on this one, Sam? Any last bits of housekeeping on what was happening at the studio with this film? Yeah, so the other big change that's taken place during what we call the Bangers era, and what I'm sure Walt would have called the Bangers era also, had anyone asked him, is the fact that Walt Disney the man despite all this talk, all this bluster about how much Cinderella was going to be a passion project of his, was stepping back from his role. So up to this point, despite the fact that he's not an artist, Walt has been playing the role on movies, especially like Snow White and Fantasia, something akin to what we today would call a director. There were credited directors for these movies, but Walt was playing this role of overseeing the whole process very, very closely. Now he's becoming a lot more in line with a conventional live-action producer, which has always been his credit. But yeah, he is the guy who puts the films into production, signs the checks, etc., but isn't necessarily there in the studio every single day. He is distracted by trying to get into live-action. At this point in time, while Cinderella's being made, he spent a lot of time in Britain making Treasure Island, which was going to be their first all-live-action movie. He is also very distracted by his unsuppressible obsession with model trains. I mean, fair enough, aren't we all? Yeah, and when I say model trains, I mean, like, I don't know if there's a word for these, like those mid-sized model trains where it's not a toy, it's also not an actual train, but you can kind of sit on it and ride around. You might have it in your garden. This is what Walt had. He, he loved these things. He couldn't get enough of them. And eventually this obsession with trains would snowball to become Disneyland the theme park. And that's a story that we don't have time to really get into here. But when I say he was obsessed with trains, that isn't a joke. He was genuinely spending a huge amount of his time making these things rather than shepherding the production of these features. So if he's off getting obsessed with trains, who's, who's making these movies then? A collection of people, a collection of animators and directors, many of whom had been with the studio at least as long as Snow White, some of whom had careers there stretching back into the pre-Snow White shorts. There's a bunch who, the people who are credited as directors for this next batch running through Lady and the Tramp are Ben Sharpstein, Wilfred Jackson, Clyde Geronimi and Hamilton Lusk, and they had been directors on the earlier features as well. But another set of creatives who was becoming hugely prominent and powerful and influential at the studio were the group of lead character animators who became known as the Nine Old Men. The Nine Old Men? Any relation to the Seven Dwarfs? No? (laughs) No. And I believe average height, generally, across the group. So they were what was called the animation board. Basically, because Disney were now regularly casting their animators by character, saying, okay, you're going to animate Cinderella, you're going to animate the mice, you're going to animate the stepmother... They developed this team who Walt could just dip into and assign roles to. And they became the Nine Old Men, and as time went on, they gained more and more influence over the actual content of the films themselves as well, because Walt was stepping back. And Walt named them the Nine Old Men. That group kind of coalesced around 1950, so I thought this would be a good time to just start 
picking out as we go through some of their contributions to these films. So a bit later in the show I'm going to pick one of them, we'll call him our nine-old man of the week, and we will go through some of his contributions to this film and others. Amazing. Well, I think that's enough context. I think we're ready. Let's dive into the film itself. Let's go to the ball with Cinderella. Okay, so what I loved with Cinderella is that at the very start, before you've even seen anything, you are hit by this blast of sound. We get the RKO logo, and there's a huge, almighty, like, orchestral swell, and they're like a... Pure Disney magic. What a great way into the film. Also, the Cinderella title card, absolutely gorgeous. Am I right in saying that's Mary Blair to the max again? Absolutely, looks like. Yes, she's doing her thing. It's so distinctive, her style. I'm really glad that you can pick it out so easily in these films. There's there's other stuff that she does in this one that, that, again, felt super distinct. But one thing I guess we haven't teed up, actually, as it says on that title card, is that this is based on a story by Charles Perrault. I thought it was interesting. I think I just typically associate this with being, like, an old fairy story, but I think that's just because it's Disney, and you think of all of these things as being, like, folklore fairy stories. But yeah, what, what was the background for this one? Who was this Charles guy? Oh no, it, it is an old fairy story. Charles Perrault was a figure, he was a folklorist, like the Brothers Grimm. So both Perrault and the Grimm's, they were guys who made it their job to collect these stories and write them down. And it just so happens that the most popular, the most well-known versions of the stories that we have today, I guess with the exception of Disney for us, are the versions that they wrote down. So they, it, it was a much older story than that, but Perot's version brought to the fore a lot of the particular specific elements that Walt was drawn on, that the Disney guys were drawn on for this movie. Because I'm sure when we get to Discarded, there's going to be all sorts of like horrible, grim stuff that, that Disney left out. Because as we learn in the opening song here, which is one that I had no recollection of, it was like, Cinderella, you're as lovely as your name. Cinderella, you're a sunset in a frame. And it says, this is the sweetest story ever told. Which, I mean, I guess you could say that. It is by the end. It's not a sweet story for a lot of it. But as we have this opening intro song, we get it again. That classic Disney trope of a book. But the Cinderella book is definitely the coolest one we've had so far. It's gold. You get some curtains opening and it dazzles in the light through the window. It's really detailed. It's got a sense of grandeur to it. This is like a confident opening. This is Disney being like... You know what we do, we're going to sit you down, we're getting the storybook out again, strap in. We are back, baby. So in true Shrek style, the book then opens and we have the opening lines of the story and the pacing of Cinderella is really weird, right? Because in your opening minute, they establish the fact that Cinderella uh, has grown up with her widowed father, that her dad has then married the evil stepmother that she grows up with these kind of nasty stepsisters, that her dad then dies, that she's being raised by the stepmother and forced to do all the chores in the house. That is all established in a matter of seconds. And then we spend 20 minutes (laughs) with the mice in the house (laughs) exploring the kitchen and pissing off the cat. (laughs) It's such a uh, an unexpected usage of time, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, we were talking just last week about how all of these more recent Disney movies, like Frozen 2, Moana, Raya and the Last Dragon, open with these extended prologues where they detail the incredibly vast and complex mythology of these worlds. Nope, it's Cinderella, there's a dad, 
he's quite sexy, he's got a nice moustache, but now he's dead, and she's living with this awful woman. The end, here you go, here's the story, here's Cinderella sitting in her bedroom talking to some mice. <laughs> I mean, I would actually have liked more of a prologue to explain where the mice come from. These creatures who she finds and houses and stitches little clothes for, it's messed up. Yeah, it is kind of cute though that she makes those outfits. I think it is deranged, but okay. <laughs> ben, I've got a question for you. Shoot. Go for it. What colour is Cinderella's hair? Like a sort of yellowy, browny colour? Maybe more blondy than brown, but it's not like blondy blonde. It's not blondy blonde. I just wanted to bring this up. This is something that bugs me. In all of okay. the Disney princess merchandise, the modern day stuff, she is completely blonde. She is like bottle blonde. She is Marilyn Monroe blonde. And in this, she is like strawberry blonde, her best. Touching on mousy, you know? Touching on ginger, to be quite honest. Why can't we have a ginger princess? Why this erasure? I was about to say, you got to wait until Merida for that, but she's she's technically not... Well, does she count as a Pixar princess? No, she's in the... She's like, We're not getting into it, but yeah, she's on the <laughs> official merch, so... She's in the princess room in Wreck-It Ralph 2, and that's the deciding factor here. There you go. But when we first meet her, she's asleep. She's woken up by a couple of birds wearing hats, and immediately you can see she's so much more expressive than Snow White was. The way that she's drawn, there is more of a character there. Not as much character as we'll see with later Disney princesses, but you could see even that Disney archetype taking a step forward. My one issue, uh, your issue is with the colour of the hair. My issue is that her eyes are really creepy. She's got like uncanny valley eyes. I mean, that is possibly a result of this entire movie being shot in live action before they animated over it, which is the first time that they've done that. What? They shot the entire thing in live action? And then what? With the possible exception of the mice. I haven't seen anyone outright (laughs) say that they didn't film the mice stuff, but I also haven't seen any evidence that they did. But definitely all the human stuff was completely staged and filmed on a set with actors. It wasn't completely rotoscoped, it wasn't completely traced by the animators, but there are some scenes where you can really feel it. On The Prince in particular, weirdly enough, because that was the case in Snow White too. But yeah, this is the first time that they'd blocked out pretty much the entire movie and shot it. That is amazing. So does that footage exist somewhere? Presumably, do they have people in costumes? Did they build sets and stuff? Or is it just people in blank rooms so that they had an idea of the space that they were working in? It's minimalist, so you'll get, like, blocks and staircases and, like, a big piece of wood with the word tree written on it and stuff like that. But, yeah, you can find images of this and footage of this if you watch, like, a making of documentary or something. Oh, man, I'm going to go to Disney Plus and I'm going to hashtag release the live-action cut. It's got to be out there somewhere. The fans demand to see it and it must be four hours long. (laughs) So... Talking about Cinderella in contrast to Snow White, though, that's something I also had written down, that she is more fleshed out as a character than Snow White, that she gets more to do as a character than Snow White. But also, is she and does she? Can you describe her? What What is her personality? She's got a very sunny disposition. This is where you start to see what actually makes a Disney princess. And for me, the two things are that she is a character who is surrounded by darkness and by nasty people, and she's never corrupted by that. She keeps her inherent goodness the whole time. And also she's friends with all the animals, which is a sign that she is like an inherently trustworthy person, that all the animals sort of flock to her and do nice things for her because she is such a radiant person. 
But yet, beyond just being, like, generally nice, she doesn't have as much of a personality compared to what we get nowadays. Yeah, I mean, she certainly feels more contemporary than Snow White, and I think I've got my issues with these opening scenes where she's just walking around talking to animals, but... I do think that that gives her an opportunity to talk a lot. She walks around and just speaks, and that automatically makes her feel more lived in, more alive as a character than Snow White, who feels almost like you're looking at a painting. Like, there's a figure there, but what is she? What is she like? She's a little bit cheeky, like she'll sort of speak back under her breath on occasion, make a sarcastic comment about her sisters, maybe. And she's also more of an adult. I don't know how old she's meant to be, but Snow White comes off as a child. Yeah, she does, especially because when you first meet her in that prologue, she is literally a child, and at this point she's she is grown up, she's ready for her adult life to begin and a better life to begin. And I think the other way that we then get into her character is through the song. Sam, we're into the bangers era, and we finally have a Disney banger. A dream is a wish your heart makes. It was nice to return to a song that I knew. I was like, yes, here we go. Although the phrase, a dream is a wish your heart makes, the more I think about it, I don't know what that means. A dream is a wish. So you're dreaming what you want to happen, and that comes from your heart. I don't know. What what does it mean? Well, on that note, there's an interesting shift taking place here because Cinderella has a dream, right? Later on in Sleeping Beauty, we'll find out that Aurora has a dream. Her big song is Once Upon a Dream, which is things about the prince. Pinocchio, Geppetto in Pinocchio, he has a wish when you wish upon a star. Snow White, she has a wish. She is wishing on a wishing well for the prince to come find her. So we've gone from wishes to dreams for some reason. Like the 1930s, that's all about wishes. The 1950s, it's time for dreams, baby. I can't figure out the difference either, but that seems like it should be significant. Maybe we'll, we'll keep that thread open as we go through this next lot of films. I think, again, I'm going to keep comparing this to Snow White because you have to, but Mm. this is a lot less specific than Snow White's big I want song, Someday My Prince Will Come. Snow White wants a prince. Cinderella just wants something, like she's singing about a non-specific better life. And you can see while she's singing this song, it's not really drawn attention to, but outside the window, you can see the castle. You can see the prince's castle, which symbolizes that, right? She is Even if she's not sitting there staring at the castle, it's something that from her window in her crappy little room in this kind of private chateau, she can see this castle and all that it represents. And that castle, again, to me, was pure Mary Blair. That that has to be hers, right? There are some great shots of the castle and there are some less great shots of the castle. I actually want to touch on that as we go through, so Mm. we'll put a pin in that for now. Okay, we'll get there later. But um, after we've been introduced to Cinderella, we then get introduced to Gus the Mouse, who becomes a surprisingly large figure here. This is our way into like exploring the rhythms and the power structures in the house from a mouse perspective. You've got Lucifer the cat, you've got Bruno the dog. You see that Cinderella is, yeah, having to look after this whole house, but she's there feeding the mice, looking after everybody, while also having to then care for the sisters and for the stepmother. But Gus is our way into that because he is the new mouse on the block. We spend a decent amount of time with him. He had quite a Winnie the Pooh vibe for me, mainly because he was wearing a crop top with no trousers, and that's Winnie the Pooh's whole thing. Is this our first real set of Disney, like classic Disney talking animal sidekicks? I know we had like Jiminy Cricket and um, 
Timothy Mouse, but they felt more like peers to our protagonists. This feels like the dawn of the Disney animal sidekick trope. I think especially because they are sidekicks to a human, whereas Pinocchio, I don't know, he's he's humanish, but he's a puppet. He's like a little kid. I don't know. It feels different here that like she is a grown woman and her best friends are animals. What did you think about the mice? I just thought there was a lot of them. It was it was fun-ish. It would be like starting Snow White with the 20 minutes of dwarf antics. Being like, here you go, here's your way into this story. And you're like, we're 20 minutes into this film that's 74 minutes long. And we're still in the kitchen with the mice? Yeah, so plot-wise, I missed this out of my uh, plot synopsis. <laughs> because I wanted <laughs> it to be brief. But plot-wise, this is pretty much Diet Tom and Jerry for like 20 to 30 minutes. And mm. it is not great. And I don't like the mice at all. I don't like them being there. I don't like the way they talk. Look, Ben, I'm just going to have to say it. You can cut this out if you want, because there's no way of explaining what this is to 95% of our audience. Mm-hmm. The mice sound like fuzzbuckets. <laughs> this, right, that's saying in. Fuzzbucket, if you've not seen it. I would say go to Disney Plus and watch Fuzzbucket. It's only 45 minutes long, but it is one of the most horrifying things you will ever see. If you don't want to watch the film, just Google the word Fuzzbucket, look at images, and that'll tell you everything you need to know. But Sam, I thought you might quite like the mice, because the lead mouse... Not Gus, I can't remember his name. Jack. He's quite a fun, cool dude. He's got a bit of a Bart Simpson kind of vibe. And his voice, (laughs) he sounds a lot like Donald Duck. He's like Diet Donald Duck. I guess, but Donald Duck speaks like a human man. No, he doesn't. Donald Duck... No, okay, he doesn't sound like a human man, but I mean his speech patterns, his dialogue, okay, his things that a person would is say. more developed. These guys speak like the nightmarish Ratman Fuzzbucket <laughs> in this creepy baby voice with muddled up words saying things like, oh, Cinderella kind of crap. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. It upsets me. So just to clarify, you don't like the mice? <laughs> Not a fan, but I do like cartoon cat and mouse action. I like Sylvester and Tweety. I like Tom and Jerry, you know. This just felt like that, but worse, because you can't go to the same extremes as Tom and Jerry. Like, when Lucifer the cat gets hit with something, I want to see his head take the shape of the thing with which he was hit, right? That's what should happen in cartoon cat and mouse action. You get hit with a spade, bam, your head's a spade now. Tom and Jerry can go to extremes that Disney can't. Disney won't go that far. The mice really, like I said, they're our way into this household, into the power dynamics, and we see that the wicked stepmother and and the sisters, they're forcing Cinderella to make them breakfast. I thought it was interesting, just before we move on from this sort of opening section of the film, that we've spoken a lot in other films about who gets to look human-y and who gets to look like a cartoon. And the sisters are both very cartoony, but Cinderella and the stepmother are more human-y. What does that mean? Yeah, it's it's to mark the characters as comic. You know, we saw that with the dwarfs in particular in Snow White. If they want us to really relate to a character, to really empathise with them, they'll make them look like a human. If they want us to laugh at them, like the stepsisters, but also like the king and the grand duke, they'll give them a lot more cartoony qualities, especially if they're meant to be funny, which all of those characters are. Lady Tremaine is an interesting point of contrast to the Queen in Snow White, who in her human form was very realistically animated. Human form? She's still a human. (laughs) Sorry. But when she turns into this witch, she gets a bit more cartoony, she gets a bit more caricatured, and that's to make best use of the potential of animation to frighten us. 
in this movie, Lily Tremaine doesn't need to do that to be scary. She barely even needs to move to be scary, and that's what makes her a great villain. Yeah, she is super evil, and she's got a moody vibe going on. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, That's the Nine Old Man of the Week alarm, because Lily Tremaine (laughs) was animated by Frank Thomas, who is indeed our Nine Old Man of the Week. So, Frank Thomas was an animator who was really well known for his skills as an actor, as in the ability to make these characters act. He was known around the studio as the Laurence Olivier of animation. So he worked on some of the dwarf scenes in Snow White, in particular the funeral. He did a bit of Pinocchio stuff in Pinocchio. He did a bit of Young Bambi, and he did the characters of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And I think especially with Ichabod, you really get some brilliant character acting coming through there, especially in the in the chase scene at the end. So he mainly did Lee's characters. He did work on Leeds, characters you're supposed to like. But here he was cast against type as Lady Tremaine. And having to animate Lady Tremaine, I think, really shows his range as an actor, because as, as I said before, she's a very cold figure. She's a very withdrawn figure and she's very still, but she's able to be expressive and terrifying despite that. And a lot of credit there goes to the voice actress Eleanor Audley, with whom Frank Thomas worked very closely. But the subtle movements which she expresses, especially in this scene where we first meet her when she's lying in bed, barking orders at Cinderella really speaks to Thomas's talent. He wasn't an animator who used like extreme keyframes, which a lot of his peers did. You would draw the extreme movements of a character and then animate in between them, or more commonly get someone else to animate in between them. If you look at what he does with any of his characters, but especially with Lady Tremaine, he doesn't really use these extreme frames. There's constant movement. Even though she seems still, she's always moving something, even if it's just her arm you know, to make her feel alive while still giving her this very chilly presence. And that's our Nine Old Man of the Week. Uh... (laughs) There we go. What a great interlude. Okay, so that I think about wraps up the first section of the film in the house. And then we go to the castle where we find out that the king wants to hook his son up with basically anybody. Um, This king is obsessed with having grandkids. And so he decides to put on a ball that very night to make sure his son gets a move on, finds a wife, and uh, he wants every eligible maid to be there. This guy is just desperate for grandkids. That's your kind of bit of setup. And then we are back to Cinderella's house again, where we learn another key trope in the Disney princess archetype, which is that Cinderella has the voice of an angel, but her stepsisters, well, their voices are absolutely honking, basically. Uh, They are indulging in some musical entertainment while Cinderella is scrubbing the floors but as she's doing that she's singing she sounds amazing and that led to one of my favorite sequences in the film where Cinderella is singing the song Sing Sweet Nightingale and as she's doing that you get all of these colored bubbles appear all the bubbles from the scrubbing that she's doing on the floor and she's reflected in all these different colored bubbles it had a sense of the the trippiness that we've seen in some of the package films and even in something like Dumbo but without that creepy element it was just really gorgeous what can you tell me about that sequence sam well i have read from multiple sources even though i find this quite hard to believe that this is the very first or one of the very first ever uses of overdubbing like in music as in recording somebody's vocals multiple times and synchronizing them because Walt had this idea and Walt specifically like I'm going to give credit to him where it's due even though he wasn't doing everything on these films anymore Walt had the idea for this sequence whereby you would have 
Cinderella harmonizing with herself. And everyone was like, this is impossible, how do we do that? And they figured out how to do it. I don't know anything about music technology, but there you go. Apparently it was the first time that was done. They had to develop the capabilities to do it for that sequence. And yeah, it's worth it. It's nice, it's sweet, it works. It shows Cinderella as this angelic yet kind of isolated figure set off to the side, almost trapped within these bubbles, trapped within this world. And it is one of the few real flights of fancy in this movie that was going to be around this point in the film. Perhaps it was almost rejected in favour of this sequence, but there is a lot of concept art for a Mary Blair conceptualised sequence of Cinderella singing about how much she hates work and how much she would like to transform into multiple Cinderella's. So there was going to be this like surreal, almost Pink Elephant style, Mary Blair designed sequence where she's splitting off into like hundreds of different Cinderella's. Almost a bit like The Sorcerer's Apprentice as well. And that's no on way. Disney+. Plus. They've got the song and they've synced it up with the Mary Blair art and it's there. It's in the extras on Cinderella on Disney+. Plus. So check that out. But yeah, it feels like this is overall a very restrained movie compared to something like Dumbo, for example. And this is the animators being allowed to indulge in something more fanciful. Yeah, I totally agree. It was one of my favourite sequences in the film. And it's just nice that in a more safe Disney movie like this, you still get these little moments of really yeah, special and intriguing animated sequences. Something else I just wanted to pick up from this sequence is the accent thing. And I wonder how this relates to the whole Disney princess trope. So I think it's kind of interesting that the stepsisters have American accents. The stepmother has a British accent, obviously because she's evil as hell, but Cinderella's accent is kind of ambiguous. It's sort of nothing. It's really sound British, but it doesn't sound American in the way that the stepsisters do. What is going on there? Yeah, that's quite common in animation in particular, actually, but I think in film more in general, you get it a lot in um, the accent Carrie Fisher uses in Star Wars, for example. Different ways to characterise people through the use of accents. So you've got these stepsisters who are meant to be uncouth, who are meant to be obviously not working class. This is a fairly well-off family, but they are not very well-mannered. And therefore, they have these scrappy, kind of very American working class sound and voices. Whereas Cinderella, she's a bit more refined. She's a bit more upper crust. I think one thing that it does suggest is maybe that this family that she has been married into, the Tremaines, are kind of new money poses almost whereas the family she's coming from with her father were a bit more genuinely refined and aristocratic perhaps interesting class commentary i'm not sure how well that reflects on walt what he's trying to say about uh people getting ideas above their station eh sam i mean it is a very conservative film isn't it i mean it It is is still this female character who has very little agency who things just happen to her rather than her doing things she never rebels against the circumstances things just happen and lucky her on the note of the conservative politics of this film that brings us to cinderella cinderella every day it's cinderella just going to point out very similar vibe to be our guest but there is a moment in that song so the mice decide that they're going to make cinderella's dress for her and there's a line in that song (laughs) where the lady mice sing leave the sewing to the women And it's like, you're all mice. It doesn't matter (laughs) which gendered mice are doing the sewing or not. Yeah, I mean, we are a long way away from... Well, I mean, one could argue that Disney still aren't particularly progressive in terms of their gender politics. But, you know, we're a long way away from even Jasmine, the first Disney princess with Moxie, even, you know? And maybe even uh, trousers. Is Is she the first one with trousers? She's got those, like, harem pants. 
I feel like this is the first Disney film that passes the Bechdel test just because the vast majority of its characters are women, right? Like there are more women with speaking roles in this movie than there are men. And for most of the movie, Cinderella is indifferent to the prince. She doesn't go to the ball to meet the prince, she goes to the ball because, as I was saying earlier, she just has this sort of ambient dream of something more, this abstract desire to move beyond this world that she's being trapped in. And all the way through the movie, she does, I don't want to say that she drives the plot because, like I say, things just happen to her, but she is present for the whole plot, which is more than can be said of Snow White and Aurora, the princesses on either side of her. So it's not a progressive movie in terms of its gender politics whatsoever, but it's maybe out of any of these first three Disney princesses she has the most to do it's a low bar anglerfish just swimming over the bar at the bottom of the mariana <laughs> trench you know but this is the one this is the the most characterful disney princess the disney princess with the most agency and the most relevance to her own plot of this first batch do with that what you will so the mice make a lovely pink dress for cinderella and it sounds like it's all going to be great she can go to the ball after all but actually the stepsisters have another idea they tear the dress apart it was quite a horrorish sequence where they're like all clawing at cinderella they're like ripping the dress off her lots of fast cutting it was very in your face and as we all would cinderella runs off to have a big cry in the garden and as she does that suddenly the frame starts to glow Enter the fairy godmother, another classic Disney and just general fairy tale trope. This is a cool design for the fairy godmother. I like that she's got a kind of kindly soft grandma vibe and that lilac poncho, cool look. Yeah, Walt wanted a more regal design for the character, something more in line with the blue fairy from Pinocchio because he thought that that's what fairies look like. They're impressive and powerful. And I think it was actually the nine old men members of that group who were pushing for... I guess a more gently comedic fairy godmother because she is quite funny. She like forgets her words. She's lost her wand. There's a little bit of, of comedy there, a little bit of, of, of humour. And more human. She's got a more motherly relationship with Cinderella than the Blue Fairy does with, say, Pinocchio. She feels like someone you can really get along with. She's definitely less ethereal as a character. The other thing I thought was interesting with her is that, again, she's something that you really remember about this film, and she's in it for literally this one scene. It just fascinates me when stuff like that pops up. Yeah, and again, because it's because this is the most iconic scene, I would suggest the most iconic song. Yeah. If I asked you to sing a song from Cinderella, it would be Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo. <laughs> ben, why is she there? Who, the fairy godmother? Yeah, what's she doing? What's she up to? Well, she's just been keeping an eye over Cinderella, watching her have an absolutely horrible life, but never decided to do anything until this moment of the crying in the garden. I want the Frozen 2-style extended prologue about who the fairy godmother is. Does she come from a race of fairy godmothers? Okay, well, Sam, there's a magic river, and the magic river is actually a glacier, but also there is five, four spirits, and they're in the forest, and everyone's trapped in the forest because of a bad thing that happened. No, no. It's kind of interesting that she just pops up now to sort everything out. Like, lady, come and sort her entire life out, please. I mean, she has a line. She says, if you lost all your faith, I couldn't be here. Which, more than explaining what she's doing there, I think speaks to what the filmmakers see as being the heroic quality of Cinderella. If she has a virtue, it is that of faith and hope and, I guess, dreams, right? She just sticks with it. She works and works and works. And I don't want to say it pays off because this isn't... What happens is not a response to the fact that she works. It's a response to the fact that she doesn't lose hope while she's 
doing it. And I think that that's something Walt Disney felt. That's an aspect of the character in which Disney saw himself. So what you're saying is a fairy godmother is a dream, is a wish your heart makes. That's exactly what I'm saying. There should have been another song during this sequence with that title. But yeah, this was the actual moment in which Cinderella gets her dress. It's a great piece of animation. You've got some lovely, like, sparkly effects on there, and then she does a nice twirl, which is very intricately drawn. Absolutely gleaming. Walt Disney would cite that as his favourite piece of animation the studio ever did. Oh, do you know what? Fair play, Walt. And it it might not be the wildest bit of animation Disney ever did. I mean, that is still Horny Donald's reverie. But in terms of, yeah, quintessential Disney image, that is Disney magic right there. I think it's because of what the scene means to Walt and what this film means to Walt and what these themes mean to Walt. Again, I don't want to do too much of like an auteurist reading of these through the Walt perspective because he wasn't working on it really in that kind of way. But think about where this falls. The studio have been working their arse off all the way through World War II. At least from Walt's perspective, he's been putting in so much effort to keep the studio afloat. And this is the movie that pays off for them, yeah? This is the movie where the dream his heart wished makes true. <laughs> I'm with you. I get what you mean. Yeah, this is this is the Disney dream kind of coming true for, for Disney itself. It's really interesting to hear how much of a personal resonance Cinderella as a story and as a character has for, for Walt. I would never would have pegged that. You mentioned Cinderella's dress, which is amazing, but my possibly favourite image in this whole film also came in that transformation sequence, and that is the fairy godmother bringing the pumpkin to life, and it sort of crawls along the ground on its big green tendrils. There's just something really cool about that. Yeah, it turns into a guy. It turns into a jaunty pumpkin guy for like five seconds before it turns into a carriage. Bring him back. That pumpkin went on a real journey over the course of, like, 20 (laughs) seconds. He was alive and sentient for, like, seconds. He was like, you see him dance around? He's like, hey, look at me, whoopee, I'm alive. Oh, I'm a carriage. (laughs) That is a character arc right there. And he is, of course, the means of getting Cinderella to the ball. And there were some amazing shots as, as Cinderella enters the ball. Like, the scale of that palace is huge and you really feel it. Like, these characters are dwarfed by the enormity of the caverns of this incredible palace. This is what I wanted to say about the palace. This is a very Mary Blair-inspired drawing, right? A lot of these nighttime sequences, the journey from Cinderella's house to the castle is very Mary Blair-inspired, and the journey back, like the chase as she runs away from the palace afterwards, that's all very present in Mary Blair's art. A lot of those designs are very present in Mary Blair's art. But the earliest scenes in this film, especially the earliest scenes at the palace, seem to have so much less character to them, seem a lot more clinical, sterile, seem a lot more functional. Like, the very first shot we see of the palace before we meet the King and the Grand Duke as the plan and the ball, that is not good, right? And I'm thinking to myself, this is like, this castle became the Disney logo, effectively, right? That's what that represents, is Cinderella's castle. And this first shot we see of it is not good, but then we see this other shot of it in the nighttime sequence before the ball, this Mary Blair inspired shot, which is spectacular. It's gorgeous. It's almost as if, well, it's almost as if they were taking inspiration from this brilliant artist for one portion of the film and not the other. Um, but it seems to match up with like, all right, we are in this dream space now. Before this is the castle as it is. This is the castle 
that the king and the duke make plans in. This is the castle where, like, political decisions are made, right? But now, as Cinderella approaches, this is the castle of our dreams. This is... Not to say that Cinderella is dreaming, but this is a dreamlike space that we have entered. There definitely is a dreamlike feel to the whole nighttime at the palace sequence because the Cinderella turns up at the ball and the prince, who may I just say is a boring bastard to the highest degree, is the most bland looking character and the most bland character full stop I think I've maybe seen in any of these films so far. But he um, goes straight for Cinderella when he sees her. He is instantly captured by her and as soon as he walks up to her they just start dancing. They start the waltz. There's this glowy purpley pink background and it just all happens in this weird vortex of this one night where they instantly fall in love and they have this connection and it's all happening straight away they waltz even out of the castle straight into the garden it feels like it has this fluidity this dreamlike quality to it yeah there's this really interesting detail in the shot where they first start to dance which is almost certainly just due to like budgetary concerns or time concerns but in this shot in the foreground, Cinderella and the prince are there, they are dancing, they are fully animated. But in the background, we have all of these onlookers who are basically represented as these stylized, minimalist silhouettes, completely still. They are painted onto the background, right? And obviously that's because they didn't have the time or the money or the inclination to animate each member of this crowd individually moving. But the effect that it produces is that we are seeing this from the perspective of the prince and Snow White, where nothing else else matters. Remember at this ball, the prince has been presented with so many women, including Cinderella's stepsisters, and he's just rejected all of them, he's not interested, and then suddenly he sees this woman who he falls in love with at first sight, and she totally enraptures him. It makes sense to him, and to her, the rest of the ballgoers are nothing. They are these silhouettes fading in the background what matters is them i just want to shout out as well one of my favorite images from this sequence when cinderella and the prince start to get together there's a lovely shot as they're entering the garden together that they're sort of walking in the background and there's water flowing in the foreground and they're sort of all blurred out by the water and they walk up to the fountain and as Cinderella touches the water, the water ripples and then that rippling water, it's like a scene transition, that becomes the night sky for the next shot. It's its amazing. That, I thought, was some of the most innovative animation that we see in this entire film. It's all just looks better than the rest of the movie. This scene, I think also you could extend it as far back as the fairy godmother and as far forward as the chase away from the palace they're just working on another level in terms of the colour palettes in terms of the effects animation in terms of the way that these shots are composed it does give it this dreamlike quality and it does ask the audience to focus on this and to fall in love with these characters and in that sense it's doing a lot of the work because the characterization certainly isn't making us fall in love with them nor is this song I wouldn't say which is kind of a dreary ballad I couldn't even mm-hmm. hum it it should, that should be the big song, that should be the big moment, but it's a bit of a misfire, I think. So the pair of them, they instantly fall in love, they dance, and suddenly it's midnight. They've barely exchanged words. Somehow Cinderella doesn't know that this is the prince. This is the guy that you're trying to meet. And yet they're out of time, and Cinderella has to rush out of the ball. She dashes home. Uh, she's chased by coach riders with red capes and horses with glowing red eyes. This is our second tense horse chase in a row after the uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow in Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And so that moves us into the sort of final act of the film where the king is desperate to find out who this person was that his son 
fell in love with at the ball. They have the glass slipper. They've just got to work out who it fits. Before we get to that, there is a scene where the king is having this weird-ass dream where he's being ridden by his imaginary grandchildren. He's some kind of horse and there are, like, children on his back. Yeah, that that image of him getting ridden by his grandchildren. (laughs) There's no other way of saying it. It is weird. That is kind of the second real um, dive into fantastical imagery after the Sing Sweet Nightingale sequence. And so the king goes into a murderous rage when he finds out that nobody kept track of who this mystery woman was. Uh, the plot is kicked into gear to to get everyone to try the glass slipper on. And when she hears about this, the stepmother, she hypes up her daughters like, this is your chance, you're going to get the prince after all. Cinderella, meanwhile, overhears this conversation. She is absolutely vibing on the possibility that the prince is trying to find her. She, Her creepy eyes, she kind of like half closes her eyes and goes like, <laughs> for a couple of seconds. <laughs> it's weird. Anyway, the evil stepmother decides she's going to lock Cinderella away up in the tower, up in her bedroom. There's a great moment where there's a shot of the stepmother and the entire frame darkens, but her eyes stay bright green as she clocks on to who this mystery girl is and, and hatches this plan to lock Cinderella away. Yeah, towards the end of the movie, we start to see the previously very still, very composed stepmother go a little bit mask off. Like earlier in the film, she's trying to break up a fight between the stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella, and she says, Girls, above all, self-control and that feels like the motto for her character but now she is breaking down she is like running through the castle shouting cinderella cinderella breaking into this <laughs> falsetto like her voice is cracking and yeah you get this like monstrous close-up of her which really evokes nothing less than maleficent who's going to come many movies down the line but it has the same lime green color palette that's given to maleficent and that's given to various other Disney villains through history actually she becomes in this brief moment a horror movie character stalking up the stairs like Nosferatu to lock Cinderella in that room big creepy vibes and that leads us to a sequence that I really enjoyed actually that reminded me quite a lot of Mickey and the Beanstalk where the mice take it upon themselves to rescue Cinderella they're going to get the key from the evil stepmother unlock the door let Cinderella come downstairs so she can try the slipper on and yeah just this sort of whole idea of these tiny characters trying to get a key from a much bigger character going in the pocket felt a lot like the mickey and the beanstalk segment from fun and fancy free to me yeah then they've got to drag it up the stairs we'll get this great shot of the stairs from the mouse's eye view which makes it look like this impossible everest the sheer effort of that it looks exhausting yeah great acting on those characters and then just when they get to the top lucifer pounces traps them in a ball and everyone's got to get involved like some birds come in and drop things on the cat the dog runs up and starts attacking with the cat the action climax of this movie is a bunch of animals beating the shit out of a cat like it's not exactly the chase from snow white it's not exactly monstro it's not exactly the prince versus the dragon in sleeping beauty but it feels tense it has real stakes they have managed to take this basically a very simple domestic scenario and through the use of these animal characters who i will say i maintain very irritating cannot abide them but they provide us with this mouse eye view of this house which makes it look like this epic battleground this epic fantasy realm that they have to traverse yeah i thought it worked really well i did not expect cinderella to have like a tense action finale but that's exactly what it has and it sort of pays off a lot of that opening 20 minutes we spend with all the mice and the, and the creatures in the house 
else. Like this is where all of that comes back into play. Understanding that the mice are terrified of Lucifer and the only thing that's going to scare Lucifer is Bruno the dog. Um, I like that when Bruno kind of comes to save the day. In the end, Lucifer falls out the window. It was like Bran at the end of that first episode of Game of Thrones, like tumbling out of the window, like... Yeah, I don't believe we ever get any confirmation that the cat survived. I assume he landed on his feet, but I don't know if he was still alive when he did so. It could have crushed every bone in his body. Speaking of tense finales, after you get that action sequence... I also gasped. <laughs> I legit gasped when uh, Cinderella, she gets out of the room, she goes downstairs, she's going to try the slipper on, and the evil stepmother trips up the duke, and the glass slipper shatters. And I was like, oh my god, no, wait, what? <laughs> no. But Cinderella is not to be messed with. She just carries around the other glass slipper in her pocket or something. Oh my, it's such a moment. She just reaches behind her, she says, I have the other slipper. Bam! You're done! Game over! If that was a mic, she could have dropped it, but then it would have broken, and then... Obviously, it would have been awkward. (laughs) But that is, you know, that is it. She has sealed the deal. That Okay, so she's got two qualities, right? Two virtues that get her through this movie. One, she has faith. Two, she hoards shoes. Just keeps them on her. So that's a pretty good message. Hoard shoes, keep the faith. It all wraps up super quickly, because she tries that slipper on. It's very clear that Cinderella is the one... A second later, there are wedding bells. The two of them have got married. They're kissing in the back of the carriage. And that is it. The book is closed. They lived happily ever after the end. It really, really wrapped up at a clip. No closure for the villains. We don't find out what happened to them if they were punished. No reappearance for the fairy godmother. She couldn't even like turn up at the wedding at the end to be like, well done, kids. You did good. Oh, she was not invited. There's no way she was getting an invite. No dialogue, I don't think, from the prince at all, right? No, I mean, that would require him to have some kind of personality. But there was still room for, like, half an hour of animal antics at the start. It is such a lopsided movie. It was like, alright, let's shift all the shenanigans up top. It's going to be all shenanigans for 20 minutes to half an hour. It's bewildering, because it's like, where's the stuff? Where's the plot? The first act of this movie is half the movie. Well, now that the listeners have had their fill of Disneyversity shenanigans, should we move on from our main discussion and get into the Disneyversity stuff? Let's go talk about the other things. And now, as ever, we've reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird, creepy things that Disney took one look at and said, there is no way we are doing that. So as we said, this is based on a specific version of Cinderella. Who was who was the guy who wrote this sort of canonical version of Cinderella? That's Charles Perrault, who was a folklorist from the 1600s who collected a lot of these very well-known fairy tales and wrote some of the most ubiquitous versions of them. So, for example, he is the guy who added or at least codified the use of the pumpkin, the fairy godmother and the slipper to the story of Cinderella, which prior to this was something that was repeated in various different forms across different cultures, but Perot wrote the version that we're most familiar with today. And Disney stick quite close to his version. One thing that he specifies is that she gets the name Cinderella because she has to sleep by the fireplace to stay warm and she wakes up covered in cinders. So people call us Cinderella. Right. See, we're, we're going to get into The Lasting Legacy and talk about Kenneth Branagh's live-action Cinderella. But yes, there is an element of that in the live-action Cinderella. So remind me to bring that up when we get there. 
Well, something else that I believe Branner incorporates that Disney's studio didn't is the fact that um, there's lizards in the Perot version, in addition to the horse and the dog and the mice turning into the coachman or whatever, you get lizards who turn into two footmen. I don't know why Disney took out the lizards. I would have liked to see some lizards. Yeah. But having said that, we are doing Alice in Wonderland next time and that movie gives good lizards. Ooh, so okay. watch out for that. I guess one of the major differences, and this actually has a parallel in terms of Disney's adaptation of Snow White as well. In Snow White, the witch tries to kill her three times through three different means in the original Grimm. Sorry, I don't like saying the original because it's not the original. (laughs) These are very, very old stories. But in the Grimm that Disney was drawn on. In Perot's Cinderella, similarly, she uh, has two balls. Unlike Adolf Hitler, Cinderella has two balls. (laughs) She goes to the first one, meets the prince, and then makes it out before midnight. And then she goes back again because the prince has thrown another ball to try and woo that woman back. And that's the time where she gets caught short, so to speak, and loses her slipper. So both times, does the fairy godmother have to be like, oh, so I've got to sort you another outfit, you go into another ball, and I've got to get another pumpkin, and she does the whole thing twice? Yeah, I think so. That is a lot of extra work for her. But, you know, it it worked out exactly the same way in the end. You can see why they thought they would streamline that. It's not... Yeah, an editor would just put a big cross through it going, like, don't need this, already done this, repeating stuff, you know? But to be honest, Ben, this isn't the most interesting version of Cinderella in terms of weird stuff that got left out. The most interesting version of Cinderella is the later version collected by the Brothers Grimm, so they had their own version of that as well. So true to their name, their versions of fairy stories do have a lot of these darker, more quote-unquote grim elements that more modern, more child-friendly adaptations take out. But there's also just some kind of strange esoteric stuff in there. So, for example, instead of a fairy godmother, Cinderella, in the version that the Grimm's collected, gets all of her stuff from a magic tree and an army of doves. An army of doves? She's got a kind of army of doves at her beck and call, which is something you, you kind of see that in Snow White, and you kind of see that with the mice in this. Like, animals like to help these princesses, and so, yeah, Cinderella has an army of doves. But it feels a lot more like a superpower in the Grimm. She can, like, summon them. Yeah, 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 and use them to um, smite her enemies, which is a bit, <laughs> bit of a spoiler. That's really made me want a John Woo Cinderella movie, where there's mm. just, like, it's slow-mo, there's doves everywhere... Smackdowns, big violence. It's a bit like, did you ever see the um, the P. Diddy, Jimmy Page video for that Godzilla song that they did? Did I? I My brother had that song on cassette. I had the Jamiroquai Deeper Underground single. That Godzilla soundtrack was huge. But yes, that video, that like seven minute video for Puff Daddy and Jimmy Page, uh, I think it's, is it called Come With Me, Walk With yeah, Me? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And he, he gets in an elevator, which shoots up through a skyscraper at incredible speeds, flies up out of the roof in the elevator. The elevator explodes, leaving P. Diddy suspended in midair, at which point he transforms into a flock of doves, is that right? <laughs> I think so, and then it's, there's also the Roland Emmerich non-Godzillary Godzilla stomping around New York. Well, that was a tangent, but yeah, very similar to Cinderella's mastery of doves in this story. So, also in this version, in order to kind of forbid Cinderella, in order to prevent her from getting to the ball, the mother throws a bowl full of lentils on the floor, like hundreds of lentils, and she says, Cinderella, you can only go to the ball if you can pick up all of these lentils in two hours. And Cinderella enlists the help of the doves and does it in one hour. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely sorted. And then (laughs) she throws more lentils on the floor. The mother just said, oh, there's some more lentils. 
So, after the lentils, we have the ball, and in this case, we don't just have two balls, we have three balls. She goes there, she comes back, she goes there, she comes back, and you can, again, you can see this is getting quite tedious. However, the fact that the prince has now met Cinderella once, met Cinderella twice, it means that he's starting to get really determined to um, keep her there, right? He's like, why does this woman keep running away from me? He doesn't realise she has to get out of there by midnight. So, in a very wily e. Coyote-esque fashion, he covers the steps of the palace with tar to try and trap her, and that's why she leaves the glass slipper behind. Because it sticks to the tar on the stairs. Yeah, so she lifts out her foot and legs it, but the glass slipper's stuck. That's got a real Home Alone vibe to it as well. And this is all actually dramatised in a Disney movie, Into the Woods, which is an adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical, which includes Cinderella as one of many fairy stories that it adapts, and it actually... I think the lentils are in that as well. It sticks much closer to the uh, grim version than the Perot. The real sort of violent climax of this is when the guy comes round with the shoe to try and fit it on the stepsisters. And at the stepmother's urging, um, one of them cuts off her toes to try and fit into it. And... (laughs) The weird thing is, it temporarily works. She actually gets in the carriage with the prince and then drives off until he looks down and realises that she's gushing blood from her foot. Oh and then he God. tells them to turn around. Turn around and go to the hospital. Uh, no, turn around and go back to the house because this <laughs> clearly isn't really your shoe. And then they get there and then the next stepsister chops off her heel and puts that in the foot Ooh. and then they go through the exact Ooh. same rigmarole. And you know what it is? This is classic fairy tale structure. It's, it's the rule of threes. Three balls, three magical transformations three times he goes back with the slipper and people mutilate themselves anyway so eventually Cinderella puts the slipper on it's all good they get married the stepsisters and stepmother attend the wedding and Cinderella in her last act of vengeance commands her army of doves to pick out their eyes at her wedding oh yeah if you introduce the army of doves in act one you've got to deploy them in the final act that's just good storytelling Sam and Ben, you're getting married next year. Have yeah, you considered inviting any enemies and <laughs> sending your army of doves on them? I mean, army of doves in general just sounds like a great plan. We could emerge from wedding cars surrounded by flocks of doves. I'll consider it. I'll try and keep on your good side between now and then. Yeah, otherwise my doves are coming for you, especially your eyeballs. Okay, so what did the critics have to say about Cinderella? Was this seen at the time as this big return to form for Disney? Were people on board with the start of this new era? I mean, it's kind of a little bit hard to say because even in the absolute near dear of the package era, every single time Disney brought a movie out, you still had people saying, this is Disney's best yet. (laughs) But yeah, we've got the Hollywood Reporter saying the very best Disney since Snow White, which again, people have been saying that about these recent subpar films anyway. We've got uh, Time magazine saying that this is beguiling proof that Walt Disney knows his way around fairyland and that it harks back to the style of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It says it should make children feel like elves and adults feel like children, which that doesn't seem like an analogous situation, right? No, that what there's a hierarchy of like elf child. Yeah, that's how it goes. And the Chicago Tribune says the film is not only handsome, with imaginative art and glowing colours, thank Mary Blair for that, Mm -hmm. to bedeck the old fairy tale, but it is also told gently without the lurid villains who sometimes give the little ones lots of nightmares. 
And I think that Lady Tremaine is an absolutely terrifying villain. Like, even just the scene where she's introduced, lying in her bed, barking out orders. That is, like, cold and scary in a human way, you know? I think she's evil, but she's not as, like, sinister. I don't think kids would have nightmares about her in the way that I had nightmares about everything that happened in Pinocchio, you know? To be fair, I was terrified of the witch in Snow White. I said before, I couldn't even look at that VHS case because of how harrowing that was. I would just go into fits. So, yeah, okay, maybe it's not scary in the same way. Maybe they've got a point there. Other people weren't quite as kind. Variety writes that Disney has more success in projecting the lower animals, which is an unkind way to describe the mice, I think, than in its central character, Cinderella, who is on the colourless doll-faced side, as is Prince Charming. And the Saturday Review says that the heroes and heroines are bloodless transparencies cursed with wafer faces. Ooh, I mean, I thought the eyes were a bit weird, but I, <laughs> I wouldn't say they were cursed with wafer faces? What a weird phrase. Yeah, that feels a little a little bit harsh. I think that means specifically visually because you do get that. Again, not strictly speaking rotoscope, not traced, but they are hewing very closely to live action reference footage. There's definitely scenes like in the dance when the first dancing together in the ballroom and you get some close-ups, that's definitely been very closely traced and it is a bit uncanny. But it still managed to see quite a bit of action at award shows. It got three Oscar nominations, all in the kind of sound categories. So it got sound, score, and best song for... Bippity-boppity-boo? Bippity-boppity-boo? Yeah, what a bippity-boppity-banger. It won the Golden Bear at the very first Berlin Film Festival, Mm. which is a a pretty high honour. Although at that time it was split into comedy, drama, and musical, so I guess it won one of three Golden Bears. And it was the first animated movie on the cover of Sight and Sound. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, quite a highfalutin magazine for people who don't know what that is, right? It's the official magazine of the BFI. The Wax Cinderella on there. So I think a bit like Snow White, there seems to be an element in the reception of this movie that is elevating it somewhat above these other more straightforwardly cartoony Disney movies. Like this one is high art. This one is worthy of big awards in a way that, you know, Make My Music or even something like Dumbo might not have been seen to be. And so what about the box office reception then? Was this a big financial hit for Disney? They had been getting just a bit of money back here and there through the package era. Was this the massive hit that they'd been waiting on for decades? Yeah, this worked. Walt's gamble paid off. He knew that in order to really get people to flood back into cinemas, he had to give them a big feature. And it made $4.2 million, which is around the same amount of money that Snow White made, which was, you know, at the time, this is obviously 13 years later, but at the time, Snow White was an absolutely earth-shattering blockbuster of the likes few people had ever seen before. In the context of 1950, that's less astonishing but that's still not an amount of money to be sniffed at it made four times more money than the recent package films it made around four times as much money as Ichabod and Mr. Torch for example while not really costing that much more that's the other thing. By the time we got to Melody Time and Ichabod and Mr. Toad, these productions were becoming more lavish, which I think is palpable when you watch them. So yeah, Cinderella only cost like a little bit more than those recent package films to make. So the fact that it made so much more money really justified Walt's assurance that this was the way to go. Yeah, Roy must have been pleased, as sceptical as he was about kind of starting to do these sorts of full-on features again this early. It all paid off. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they never looked back. It's just feature, feature, feature from here on out. So what do you think, Ben? Is this the very best Disney since Snow White? I mean, probably not because we've already (laughs) ranked several movies higher than Snow White, but how does this compare? This ranks really highly for me. I just, I, I think you feel that level of quality and like we said from 
the perspective that we're watching this now, it does feel like quintessential Disney in terms of its its territory as a classic princess movie. But I really enjoyed seeing those sorts of artistic flourishes from the Mary Blair concept designs and like great songs in a way that I feel like we've kind of been lacking for the majority of the films that we've been watching in terms of like, oh yeah, I can see that this one is like a classic Disney hit. So I would probably give this like a four or a four and a half out of five. I enjoyed it a lot. I think the main downfall is that it is just, yeah, weirdly structured. That 20 minutes with the mice at the beginning is like a bit of a strange way into the story. But this is classic Disney. This is the Bangers era, and it begins with a bang, you know? I'm really surprised you put it up that high, actually, because for me, it's just not one of my favourites. It just There's nothing about it that really stands out. I guess you're looking at these movies more in isolation, step by step, as we go through this process of watching them all, whereas I've kind of lived with the macro view of what all of these movies are like and what all of their strengths and weaknesses are for a long time. And as we go through, I'm obviously re-evaluating them. I like Bambi a lot more this time round. Yes. my, My opinion of some of these movies has improved. But this one, so it's a refinement of the Snow White model, right? It is Snow White, but they've taken off some of the sharper edges and in a way it's paced better but also in another way it isn't yeah for me if i was going to pick a disney princess movie to watch out of the ones that we've seen so far i would re-watch cinderella over snow white at this point i think that's it i think it's because you're looking at the ones that we've seen so far whereas i'm thinking I've always got an eye on the future and I've always got an eye on these films as a body of work and this is a refinement of Snow White but it doesn't really advance it in a way that very shortly Sleeping Beauty is going to. Sleeping Beauty is going to take it to another level. So for me when I look at just these three princess movies you've got the first one and then you've got the best one and then you've got Cinderella in the middle in which therefore just feels slight very historically significant but not very artistically interesting so what you're saying is this is the age of ultron of princess movies in that it's not the first one and it's not the best one because we've got the infinity war slash endgame of sleeping beauty coming up and this one's just like there in the middle doing its thing and the do you know what i really liked it and i really liked age of ultron too so that's my (laughs) analogy and i'm sticking with it that is a good analogy and we are about to get to our equivalent of like Guardians of the Galaxy and <laughs> Ant-Man, kind of like movies that take, the, and like Doctor Strange, movies that take us off into weird alternate directions, while still adhering very closely to what we think of now as being the Disney formula. And yet, I think even when we do Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, which aren't quite as seismic in terms of how much they push things forward as Sleeping Beauty would be, but they're all still very different, all still very unique, all still have their own identities, tell different original stories that aren't incredibly familiar when put alongside the things we've already watched. And this is familiar, and I don't know, it's fine. And I hit the mice... If, if, if you take against the mice early on, I don't think you're going to have a great time with this because there's so much mice, you know? It never really dials it back. So how many stars for you? How, what would you give this? This is three. This is a clear three for me. I'm going to stick with the four. I know I said four, maybe four and a half. I'm going four because of the amount of mice shenanigans at the beginning. Yeah, right. Now then, it's time for Lasting Legacy because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. And Sam, there is a whole universe out there of other Cinderella stories. 
Well, yeah, but before we get to those, I'd like to look at the parks. I'd like to start, actually, with Cinderella Castle in Disneyland, because that is... Sorry, actually, I've messed up already. Cinderella Castle in Disney World, in the Magic Kingdom and Disney World in Florida, because that is a crucial difference, Ben. In Disneyland California, that's Sleeping Beauty's Castle. In mm-hmm. Disneyland Paris, that is Sleeping Beauty's Castle. In Disney World Florida, that is Cinderella's Castle. And in Tokyo Disney... That is Cinderella's castle. Right. Presumably different on the outside. Can you go inside the castles? Is it different on the inside? Yeah, you can go inside. Uh, Obviously, we'll get the Sleeping Beauty castle in a couple of weeks' time, but there are things within the castle that make it Cinderella-specific. There's um, mosaics that tell the story. In Florida, there's a Bibbidi-Bobbidi boutique. Oh, that is a solid pun. Yeah, and you can take your daughter there and get her dressed up as a Disney princess. I think that's what that is. So it's like you're getting made over by the fairy godmother. Uh, There's a hotel suite in the Florida castle. There is a Cinderella's Royal Table restaurant. And outside there is a Prince Charming's Regal Carousel. Obviously the Cinderella castle is iconic and forms the basis of the Disney Pictures logo as well. That's a logo that's very far into the future. We're going to start to see transformed in lots of interesting ways that put different twists on it depending on what kind of film we're about to watch. Yeah, that, that's something that I completely hadn't noticed, that that is the Cinderella castle. It's like when you pointed out that the Disney theme song, effectively, is When You Wish Upon a Star, and I'm like, oh shit, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. it is. I, I do think that is significant because both that song and the visual of the castle, as it's used in the movie Cinderella, do symbolise dreams. They symbolise wishes. They do have this significance, not just because they're iconic Disney images, but because of what they represent in those films. And that is, at least from an official point of view, that's the Disney ethos, you know, dream what you want to dream, you can be anything you want to be. Anyway, treating it with the respect that it deserves in Florida, they occasionally mess it around, switch it up a bit for various events. In 1996, it was turned into a cake for two years. I mean, not like an actual cake, but it was completely like redecorated on the outside to make it look like a giant birthday cake because it was like the anniversary of the park's opening. Right, right. And in 2004, because Disney World was getting its Lilo and Stitch ride, it was covered in toilet paper. It was TP'd because that's what Stitch would do. That crazy little guy, that twisted character, he's always turned things upside down. Which I would not know because I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've never seen Lilo and Stitch. That is a blind spot for me. Well, that's a bit of a spoiler, Ben. He's a bit of a delinquent. He's a bit of a oh. no-good Nick. <laughs> Can't wait to meet him. Um, so before we get to the movies, there's been a couple of Cinderella video games. What, what do you think a Cinderella video game would entail? I mean, I imagine it's going to be a platform game. You play... Oh, it's you have to be the mice, right? You're the mice trying to run around the kitchen and eat the cheese and escape the cats. Yeah, that's pretty close. Uh, There's Cinderella's Magical Dreams on the Game Boy Advance in 2005, and that switches between the mice getting up to platform and hijinks and running away from the cat and stuff, and Cinderella just walking around, like, cleaning up the stables and stuff. That doesn't look quite as exciting. There's also Cinderella's Castle Designer on the PC. But I think what we really need to get into, the meat of this discussion of Cinderella's legacy, is going to be its sequels and remakes, because... It is the first movie that we've looked at that's had more than one sequel. There was the sequel to Bambi, Bambi 2, which we had a great time with, or which I Mm -hmm. had a great time with, and you listened to me talk about. (laughs) And Dumbo had a live-action remake. This has a remake and two sequels. 
Yes. So, lots to get into, Ben. Okay, let's do the straight-to-DVD or straight-to-VHS sequels first, and I know nothing about these. I can't wait. And you've watched both of them. Oh, That's yeah. That's dedication. Again, I would like to ask, what would you do with a Cinderella sequel? Okay, so the, the first one ends with them having just got married. I imagine that it's going to be like, you know, the end of The Graduate, when they're on the back of the bus, they've escaped, and it's like, oh, what now? oh no, the crushing reality is setting in. So I think it's going to be Cinderella's incredibly depressing married life with this extremely boring two-dimensional guy that she realises she doesn't know him at all. That is my guess. I mean, you're in the right ballpark, I would say. Mm-hmm. Maybe the tone is slightly off, but you're in the right ballpark <laughs> in terms of how they choose to follow this up. So, Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True. It's an anthology movie. It's a package movie. Oh, no way. Back in the package era already. Yeah. It has been theorised that this was originally meant to be the first three episodes of a Cinderella TV show. I don't think there's any official confirmation of that, but later on there are sequels to Hercules and Tarzan, which were cobbled together out of episodes episodes of what eventually became TV shows and this is cobbled together out of three segments which could easily have been a Cinderella TV show. Broadly it covers the period immediately following the wedding as Cinderella tries to ingratiate herself with the prince's family and with the staff in the palace and tries to take on a little bit of political responsibility. Political intrigue. Well, yes, absolutely. It has a framing device in which the mice are, along with the fairy godmother, who comes back, because I was quite disappointed not to see her return at all at the end of the last movie. So she's back, she's chilling in the castle with the mice, and the mice are writing a book about the continuing adventures of Cinderella, which to me invokes movies like like Adaptation or like Nocturnal Animals, like these kind of stories where is this a book or is this real or, or Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell? Are they controlling the actions of Cinderella by... <laughs> it's, it's unclear what... It's very like Charlie Kaufman's Cinderella 2. It's unclear what level of reality we're <laughs> operating at here, what events actually took place and what is just the mice weaving their own tale. Again, that means it's very mice-heavy. cinderella Ectaki, New York. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the mice narrate portions of this, which is completely insufferable. You know, there's such a thing as too much mice, and Cinderella 1 was pushing it. So, look God, let's get through these quickly. Story 1, Cinderella has been indoctrinated into the rules and customs of the royal family, I'll be honest, I watched this within a week of watching the Oprah Winfrey, Meghan Markle interview, and there are parallels, Ben. Oh, no way. Yeah, so it's very much about... Actually, the, the king and the prince are barely in this. The prince, I don't think, speaks in the whole movie. Oh, actually, he's got one interesting line, which I've written down. So this is about Cinderella trying to deal with the snooty management team at the castle and basically they're telling her all the rules about what she can and can't do. She's been given the responsibility to plan a ball but she's not being allowed to do whatever she wants. She's got to do it within the restrictions of the palace customs, the palace traditions. And it becomes a bit of a class issue as well because Cinderella's friends, Cinderella's human friends who have never been seen before and who don't get any speaking (laughs) parts in this movie. And where did she get human friends from? She's been locked away, like, clearly cleaning up after the sisters and after her stepmother for her entire life. Well, apparently she's got a social circle composed of, like, working-class tradesfolk from the village, and they gather at the gates to come to say hello and hopefully get invited to this party, and she tries to let them in, but she's not allowed. It's very odd. This just, like, absolutely anonymous thrall of um, people. Let's just clarify, this film is called Cinderella 2 Dreams Come True? Well, eventually, Ben, of course, the dream comes true, and she manages to stick a middle middle finger up to the system and throw the greatest ball anyone has ever seen, despite not adhering to tradition. 
Um, it's got loads of god-awful songs in it, by the way. Country songs, same as Bambi, like pop country songs. What's that about? It doesn't fit with the like time period of the movie or like the tone <laughs> of the movie at all. What is that? Anyway, it ends with uh, Cinderella and the prince dancing at this ball and she says, Someday I'll get this princess thing right. And the prince says, I think that day is today. Oh, she worked it out and then she, she can only be the princess that she is. Story two, Jack the Mouse wants to become a person because he is basically a big simp for Cinderella. He wants to keep helping her out in the same way that he did at the end of the last movie, but he can't because he's a mouse and he thinks he's useless, he's too small to do anything. So he asks the fairy godmother to turn himself into a human who ends up being called Sir Hugh Man. Oh, God, that is not a good pun. I appreciated other puns, but that is not a good pun. And I talked a bit about how in the original I thought the dialogue of the mice was a bit creepy, a bit fuzzbucket-esque. And I don't throw the phrase fuzzbucket-esque around lightly, as you know. But it's even creepier when he's a person, walking around, speaking in like a normal voice, not the high-pitched squeaky voice, calling her like Cinderella and all that. That's creepy. (laughs) He eventually has to change back into a mouse to do the one thing that only a mouse can do, which is scare away a rampaging elephant. Classic cartoon logic. All works out. And feels pretty offensive after Dumbo as well, because mm-hmm. we've been taught by Disney to empathise with rampaging elephants and think, you know, what made them this way? Danger. Mad elephants. Story 3 introduces a thread that's going to run through both of these sequels, which is the rehabilitation of one of the stepsisters, right? These movies decided that one of the stepsisters is a good one. Do you know which one? Did you get any hints from the first movie? I mean, I can't even remember the names. What was it, like, Grind- Grindabel, Grindable, or, uh, Grindelwald? <laughs> Grindelwald? <laughs> Cinderella 4, The Crimes of Grindelwald? They are called Anastasia and Drizella, and Drizella is the one with the black hair and the green dress, and Anastasia, I think, has red hair and a pink dress. And uh, Anastasia is rehabilitated in this movie. She has a sympathetic arc wherein she falls in love with a baker. So again, it's a, it's a class story. It's about her falling in love with someone below her station, and obviously her mother is furious about this. Yeah, this movie is terrible. It's bibbity bobbity bollocks. <laughs> We've talked about it for way too long. This could have been one movie with two subplots. There's no reason why this had to be an anthology, apart from the fact that potentially it was a backdoor pilot for a TV show. Cinderella 3, Ben. <laughs> A twist in time. A twist in time? Wait, this is a time travel story? It's a time travel story. Oh my god. So, Cinderella 3 seems to be set during Cinderella 2. It's after Cinderella gets married to the prince, but it's before Anastasia falls in love with the baker, right? That's how it starts. Anastasia is still a villain in this. It's a midquel within a sequel. Absolutely, that is correct. And yet, we also have time travel. So, Anastasia is still on the side of evil at the beginning of this movie. She's still with Lady Tremaine. And she steals the fairy godmother's wand, brings it back to her mother, who uses it to wind back time so that she can try and make it for Anastasia to get with the prince instead of Cinderella. This is Avengers Endgame. It's Back to the Future 2. Right, yeah. It's the first movie, again, from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And this time, Cinderella is kind of gradually realising that things aren't as they should be and that someone else is trying to mooch in with this prince. But then we also have this situation where it kind of answers a question from the first movie, which is, surely the prince would recognise this woman's face. We don't just need the shoe. So the shoe fits Anastasia this time, but then Lady Tremaine has to enchant the prince so that he thinks that Anastasia was the person he danced with at the ball 
So when Cinderella finds out what's going on, there's a sort of chase sequence where the stepmother turns the carriage into a giant evil pumpkin and she turns Lucifer the cat into a horrible little guy. Cinderella is trapped in the coach while Lucifer is on seemingly a suicide mission to drive the coach off a cliff with, <laughs> with her inside and, and kill her. And then, just as the prince is about to marry Anastasia, uh, Cinderella has to come in, again, like in The Graduate, or like in The Little Mermaid, maybe, where Ursula is disguised as Ariel in the wedding at the end, and put a stop to this situation. Everything is more or less resolved, except for the fact that, because the fairy godmother thought that Cinderella and Anastasia, who is now turned back into a goodie by the end of this, because she thinks that they've both learnt lessons... She decides to keep this as the official timeline instead of bringing us back to the timeline of the original Cinderella and Cinderella 2, right? So... So it's like a pocket universe. Yes. it's Well, in fact, now it's a lot like X-Men Days of Future Past, wherein the right. original timeline is being rewritten so that certain things didn't happen. So Anastasia hasn't got with the baker... So the only explanation is that the opening of this movie takes place before at least the third segment of Cinderella 2, but then when Tremaine turns back time in Cinderella 3, she creates a split timeline, one where she goes back in time, and then one timeline where she doesn't, which means that the end of Cinderella 2 takes place in the timeline in which Lady Tremaine doesn't go back in time, but the first two parts of Cinderella 2 still happened in this timeline, so we've now got a new timeline branching off from the end of Cinderella 3, where she did go back in time, and then in the end credits, Anastasia meets the baker again so we're gonna get it we're gonna need an extra seminar just to plot out we need diagrams (laughs) yeah we need we need flow charts we need diagrams we're gonna have to work out that what what time travel model that we're using this is way more complicated than i expected it yeah it's we 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 just don't have the space so just everybody go and watch (laughs) wait no what am i saying nobody watch cinderella 3 (laughs) leave it alone It's a better movie than Cinderella 2. If I'm ranking these horrible Mm -hmm. things, this is the best one I've watched so far, even though it did make my hair hurt more than Bambi 2 or Cinderella 2 did. Do you know what is a good movie, though? Please tell me, Ben. (laughs) The live-action Kenneth Branagh-directed Cinderella from 2015 is really good. I I think we spoke in the Dumbo episode that I, I like the Dumbo live action partly because it does something pretty different with the source material and that generally I quite like these Disney live action ones when they take a classic story and do something a bit different with it. The sort of exception that proves the rule is Cinderella in that this is a very faithful take on the Cinderella story and it's just really entertainingly done. It's just like straight up classic princess story you get a lot more of the backstory all of the stuff in the opening like two minutes of the animated version that is dispensed with in a quick like flick through cinderella's early life you see more of that so you see her with her dad and there is far less of the mice stuff so i think sam you should check this out if you didn't enjoy how much mouse action there was in the uh, animated version go and see the live action one the best thing about it is the casting so lily james great i really like her she's a good cinderella Richard Madden, he's just like a handsome dude, great for the generically handsome prince, but the best bit of casting in this, Kate Blanchett is the evil stepmother, and that is perfect. She's so good in this, she's like lapping it up in every single scene. Helena Bonham Carter is the fairy godmother, sort of, she, she's very Helena Bonham Carter in it, I preferred what they did in the animated one. Do you know what? It's a good movie. You should check it out. Yeah, I vaguely watched this, like half watched this because it was on the TV on Christmas Day a few years ago on the BBC. And I remember thinking, this looks a lot better than most Disney sequels, but I've never really gone back to revisit it. 
I watched a couple of clips for this. I watched the um, I wanted to know if they did the songs, so I watched the Helen Bonham Carter clip, the the Fairy Godmother clip, and the Dawn. Right, there's none of the songs in this. No, they don't do the songs, but they do have the lizards. You get the yeah lizard footmen as part of it, and also yeah you do get the. She's called Ella. The character is called Ella, and then I think it's because she's having to sweep up all of the stuff around the fire. Mm. Then they make a joke of it, and they're like, "Ha ha, Cinderella." Cinderella. But by the end, I think everyone's just calling her Cinderella anyway. Something else that I think goes in its favour, uh, Stellan Skarsgård's in this, right? Yes, he is, he is. So we have two members of the cast of Mamma Mia, here we go again. Maybe this is a pocket timeline within the Mamma Mia universe. I, I could believe it. There are no rules there. And in Into the Woods, the stepmother is played by Christine Baranski. What? Oh my god, it's all connected. Again, we're adding this into the seminar. This is happening in the seminar of the different timelines, the Cinderella cinematic universe. It all comes together. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar when we'll be tumbling down a rabbit hole and drinking questionable liquids from tiny vials with Alice in Wonderland. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by turning any spare pumpkins you have into horse-drawn carriages. Just don't try and use them after midnight. Get an Uber instead. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to try and work out whatever the timeline is in Cinderella 3. We'll be back with you on that. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.